Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Jamie Simonoff, the founder of Ring. Jamie is the startup world's tinkerer-in-chief, a true inventor who first stumbled upon the idea for a smart video-enabled doorbell because he wanted to communicate with delivery drivers while he was down in his garage. The journey from that moment to a famous $1 billion acquisition by Amazon is fascinating. It's full of ups and downs, near-death experiences, luck and graft, and even an appearance on Shark Tank. In this episode, Jamie tells us about the moment a random glitch very nearly destroyed everything he'd worked for, why celebrating is not always that helpful, and why you shouldn't listen to any of his advice, or for that matter, anybody else's. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Thanks very much, Jamie, for, for joining us here on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Um, I, I love your story because it seems to me that you're the purest type of entrepreneur, the entrepreneur we all want to be, the kind of tinkerer, inventor, garage band founder who's, um, who's just latched onto something ingenious and then really run with it. I suspect the story is slightly more complex than that, but what were you like as a kid? Were you always kind of tinkering away? Yeah, I, I really was a tinker um, from like, you know, as early as I can remember, um, you know, building sort of, I mean, from like, you know, the blocks that you get as a kid, just everything I did, I I, I do always remember building things and trying to invent things. Um, you know, RC cars were a big one for me that really sort of, yeah. it not only invention, but also taught me like how things work, uh, mechanical things, how they work, electrical things, how they work. Um, so I, yeah, I, I just kind of always was tinkering and I think, um, I'll say entrepreneurial in terms of, I was always trying to figure out how to make money as well. Okay. Um, and not, not to get rich. I just sort of, I think I just always liked the freedom of being able to like figure out how to make, you know, a couple bucks here and there. And I was, it wasn't, you know, no glamorous jobs. I mean, I was literally shoving out horse, shoveling horse stalls, uh, from the neighbors. Like this wasn't, you know, uh, I wasn't that smart. So. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Where was home? I grew up in New Jersey, uh, just, just outside of New York City. So in a little sort of, um, you know, quiet little sort of town, like a little suburb town. And what did you spend your, your pocket money on once you'd shoveled out the, the horse trailers? Uh, you know, early on was BMX bikes. Nice. So I loved uh, BMX was like one of my favorite things as a kid. And I built my own bike. Um, ordered all the parts. I remember, you know, when you had catalogs, yeah, you know, and you go through and you'd like the, the spokes and the different chains and like each, you, you know, each part, I like built a bike. 
um, you know, from scratch. And so I, I love that. And then, uh, that went on to mountain biking when that sort of came in. Nice. Um, and then from there it was, uh, I had a four wheeler, like a little ATV. Okay. Like a, and so, so I kind of, you know, had one of those to play around with in the sort of in the woods. I'm picturing you, I mean, this is the wrong era, but I'm imagining ET those scenes where the <laughs> kids have all those really cool American BMXs, which we never got over here with flags and just really cool accessories. It was, you know, I was kind of right at the edge of that. Um, yeah. I'm 44. So it was kind of like, I was kind of just, just kind of after that, but still like, I, I'd say it was like probably the, on the BMX side, it was definitely the older kids were doing it. So like I was the young, like the younger in terms of like, it was a little bit out of my era Yeah, already. So what were you like at school? Were you, were you top of the class or were you always <laughs> too busy on the bikes? You know, I, I, I did okay in school, um, but it wasn't my, I, it just never really appealed to me. Um, and I think it was, be, I, I think I was just, I think it's, I'm more out of the box and school, yeah. the idea of sort of that you have to follow all of these rules to sort of get the, to the, you know, it's just, if you follow the rules, you get an A, if you don't follow the rules, you get an F it's yeah. like, I, I, and I think that's where I, I just never liked that sort of format. Yeah, some people, I think I quite liked it because because of exactly like that. I realized that there was a system you could game, but then when you get out into the real world, you realize those systems just don't exist. There's no little hoops you can jump through. So you were probably much better armed for the real world. What were your first jobs when you finally graduated? So I, I was in college. I did some internships and things and tried to, you know, I was, I was you know, I, I didn't, I certainly didn't know. I never knew what I wanted to do. So I was never that clear that I'm going to go start a company or business. I mean, I always wanted, I think, to do that, but, you know, I thought I'd get a job out of school. And so out of college, I actually accepted a job at a, like a hedge fund financial institution. And I called them the Saturday, Sunday before I was supposed to start Monday for training. And I literally had like a kind of a meltdown and called the guy and said, listen, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't do this. Like I, I, I can't, I like literally just, I can't have, I can't do it. I can't go into this job. Like I can't. Yeah. And I remember the guy was this pretty successful guy. And I, I had, you know, interviewed and they picked two people out of a class, you know, out of a group of people they interviewed. And he said like, you're, you know, life is about managing regrets and you're going to regret this. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, kind of stuck with me because like yeah. for a long time I struggled. So I did actually regret it. <laughs> so, wow. you know. What was the thing that freaked you out? Was it the idea of just wearing a suit and a tie? What was it? Yeah, it was the whole, it was kind of going back to school again. Like I, I realized like immediately that I was going back into a sort of a, I, I was, you know, I, was, I went to finance because it's what you were supposed to do yeah. out of college. Like it was a great job to sort of, you know, tell a girlfriend's parents that you had, like, it was like the right thing. Like it was like the right next step. If you were writing a book, like it was yeah, like, yeah. go to, you know, this, go to school, get a job in finance in New York. Or like, like I just had a perfect. And I think that's what actually killed me is I, I just, I, I, I wanted to break out of that whole sort of thing. And um, I remember, you know, my dad was actually really supportive of it, which was nice because I mean, here he just paid all this money for his son to go to university and, you know, had this great job set up, which was like, you know, everyone was proud of me for, you know, getting yeah. this offer. And here I am saying, like, I'm not going to take it. I'm just going to sort of do my own thing, which right. I didn't really know what that was even at that time. So it was, yeah. I mean, that's pretty strong words, that guy saying you might regret this for the rest of your life. Did you? Were there moments <laughs> he, didn't say he, you might, he said you will. You will. You will. <laughs> he actually said you will regret this. 
do you look back now or has there been other points when you look back and thought what would have happened if you just got on the more conventional corporate rat race? You know, there's so many of these points in my life where I made, you know, just one decision over another. Some of them, you know, don't seem like big decisions, but looking back were, yeah. um, you know, some, you know, like, but, you know, who knows? I mean, it's like, maybe I could have, you know, built something that would have saved the world. Like if I done, like, you know, you, you never know what other things then lead to, uh, you know, it's like these, yeah. it, it, I mean, it was just like, I think it's kind of the fun part of life is that there are these gates and there, there are no rules. Like there, there, there's just, you never know where these things lead to. And it's incredible how, you know, some of the things that you do that you don't even think have any, like, you know, like there's decisions that you make every day that just one of them will be so defining to you that you'll meet yeah. your wife or, you know, not just business, but just all these things that you do. Do you make kind of gut calls? It sounds like that was a bit of a gut call or do you, do you weigh up all the options meticulously? You know, I think one of my strengths is that I'm able to take a lot. I do make gut calls, but I do think I, I make them off of, I'll say data. Um, and I, I think my, I'm very good at, I think like, you know, I'm not good at a lot of things, but I think one of the things I am good at is, is taking all the inputs that are around me and being able to sort of spit out decisions quickly on that. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, if you're building a business or, or products or anything else, like the amount of decisions you have to make is, is, is extreme and you can't, you can't have a meeting on every decision. You can't, you know, you can't spend a week on every decision. You have to, you know, you have to make a lot of decisions fast. There's that saying, I don't know what the exact saying is, but people saying no, no decision is worse than a bad decision. Do you, do you think that's fair? I think it's absolutely true. Um, yeah. I, I think indecision is, is, you know, something that, especially and you see it and you get in bigger companies. I think Amazon's actually very good at enabling, I'll say like decision makers at a big company. Um, but I, I do think that yes, indecision is, is a, a really bad thing because you'd rather make the wrong decision and then correct it again, within reason, of course, like, uh, at Amazon, they actually call it, which I love, they call it one way doors and two way doors. Yeah. You know, so if you're making two way door decisions, make the, you know, make them as fast as you can. And like, always, you can correct them. If it's a one way door decision, like this decision to not take this job, like you should put some thought into it because once you tell that guy who tells you you're going to regret it, like you're probably not going to get a job back there again. <laughs> That's fair. I think so. So what did you end up doing then? What, what was your, what was your next job? So I, I got into voiceover IP. So this is like 99, I graduated college in 99. So it's like 99 going into 2000. Um, the the dot-com boom was kind of, I was a little bit late to sort of catch the dot-com boom in terms of I had just gotten out of college. So like, you know, it was booming, but, you know, and there, but really no one from my sort of year. And again, it's very interesting when you look at people and careers and the years they graduate college, there's actually these groupings that happen. And so in a, if you graduate into a boom time, it's hard to like sort of catch the wave when it's already past you. It's like already going. Um, so, so yes, I came out in a boom time, but I didn't sort of, the wave was already big and going. So I got into voiceover IP that was coming up early, but telecom was a big thing and started building basically an international voiceover IP network. So I started traveling all over the world and because I was not, um, didn't have the resume, I was going to really like kind of the worse the country, the more open it was for me. So I was going into, you know, worse meaning like economically. So Africa, South America, uh, you know, Southern Asia. So I was in all of these sort of crazy places installing voiceover IP gear and trying to sort of create this next telecom network. What was the kind of culture 
at the time of that dot-com boom, what was the, the temperature? In my mind, it was kind of a wild time of huge sums of money and, and startups. People had no idea what they were doing, but they were just trying to do anything. It seemed like it was to do with the internet. You know, it's funny. I haven't felt that culture until basically right now. You know, you feel it all of a sudden right now. And sort of when people say like the stock market only goes up. Yeah, I remember feeling very stupid back then because it seemed like anyone that did anything was smarter than me because they did better than me. Like, you know, you'd meet these people that sort of, oh, I started this thing. It's worth a billion dollars. Oh, I, I'm, I'm like into, oh, this is Joe. He just sold his company for $500 million or just went public. And so it was, it felt like left behind was the feeling I had. Yeah. You know, it felt like everyone was sort of doing so well that I just kind of felt like, I mean, I was working, but I, I just felt like it was like, I didn't understand how to make the money that everyone else is making. And I'd say it's kind of today, you're seeing a similar thing starting where, you know, I'll get emails from people saying, you know, I make my emails on every box. And so I'll talk to customers all the time. And it's interesting. Some of them will, you know, just say like, they'll, they'll just give this out. They'll say like, Hey, I just bought a whole ring system. Uh, you know, I've been investing all my money in the stock market now. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's just, mm. it's, but you can hear like this sort of easy money thing again. And it's, it's, so it's, it is interesting to sort of have that feeling again of that time. Yeah. Um, again, I don't, I'm not saying how it'll end or, you know, if this is a, maybe this is a start of a new boom of something else. Like I'm not trying to, I'm not an economist, but it did have that, that weird feeling. So voice over IP was that, that was when you were in Bulgaria. Am I right? Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like a big leap from New Jersey to, to Bulgaria. Did you speak Bulgarian? Spoke. I mean, the, the main thing is English is really a international language. Um, you know, we're so lucky, I think. And it, it's lucky. I mean, lo, lo, and you know, to these sort of decisions you make and things like luck is obviously a huge part of it. And we're lucky that we, you know, we grew up speaking English. And it turns out that, you know, if there is a second language anywhere, it's English. And so when you go to Bulgaria, you know, if you were a native Chinese speaker, it would be very hard for you to get around that country. Yeah, of course. But as a native English speaker, like it was the thing that they sort of most people spoke as a second language. And so I was just very lucky that I was able to do that. But um, yeah, and I, you know, as a kid, my parents had never left the United States. Not only had I never left the United States, my parents had le never left the United States. So wow. I literally kind of start like hung my shingle out and started doing this business in all of these places. And to say I didn't have the pedigree to go travel the world is like an understatement. Was that the kind of the naivety of youth just being early twenties and thinking, well, oh. what can go wrong? I mean, I remember I was flying to uh, Kinshasa, which is you know Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. And I, I just sort of like, I had this list of this like spreadsheet that I would make of like all the places and where the telecom rates were and how many minutes were going. And so you can kind of see where you could make more money. And so I just like Kinshasa was on the list. And so I was in Belgium and I was like, I'll just, you know, there's a flight down there. I'll fly down there and see what's going on. Mm. And I'm flying down there and they're talking to this. There's no one on the plane. There's like 10 people on this like gigantic, I think it was Sabina was the name of the airline. It was like the Belgian airline. And I said something to the guy like, oh, like, wow, there's like no one coming down. He goes, yeah, it's World War Africa. Wow. And I'm like, what? And he's like, World War Africa. He's like, you know, the Congolese are fighting the Tutsi and the Hutu and like all like um, I literally am flying to a place. I had no idea that there was I, I mean, at this time it was it was early Internet, like dial up Internet. So you didn't have the you know, you weren't just Googling and the news. It wasn't as free flowing yeah. in places, especially like that. And so 
I literally flew to a place to stay there that I didn't know was in a full on <laughs> like war. Wow. <laughs> and how did the, I mean, did they, was there much of a, a call for voice over IP in a war torn country? Or? So the way we would, what I would do is I'd build network to then sell to the people living. So like all of the expats. So I would sell like in the U S calling cards for Congolese calling home. So I would never sell in the actual like Fun. country itself. So I was building the network to then, uh, you know, more inexpensively. So, so for someone to call there and more inexpensively and with better quality. And how did that, that company end up? What was the company called by the way? Uh, it ended up being, so I ended up sort of merging it with this company called Nobel um, and sort of sold out, uh, sold out to the business partner. There. It was, it was, it did fine. I mean, I, I didn't, I, I didn't make anything like big off of it. I mean, I kind of merged it and and kind of hooked and crooked it into something little. And then you went back to the U.S. Is that right? And then yeah, basically like back to the U.S. Yeah, armed with loads of insights and a huge amount of ideas, ready to go on the next one. Yeah, you know, and I always, I've always kept a, a notepad. I mean, now it's a now it's a digital notepad, but I've yeah. always kept a notepad of ideas and things and. Um, so I've always, I, you know, that, that serial entrepreneur has always been kind of like, or I'll, I'll even, it's really inventor. It's not even entrepreneur. It's really like, so I, I like building things and, and creating things. And so, yeah, kind of after that, when that was kind of rolling down, I had this idea to, to start doing a voicemail to text so you could, so you could uh, read your voicemail. That sounds like a, a, a good idea. Does that exist now? Or is that, am I, am I way? It didn't time? exist. I mean, this was in 2004. Five, I want yeah. to say something like that. It's either five, two thousand six. So it did definitely did not. I mean, you're you're talking pre pre iPhone. So it was like pre like really like uh, I'll say computer phone. I mean the 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 phone that had the best computer was the Nokia, like that slide out one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there was really like there was the the trio, and there was really like it was infant. The the smartphone was like infant, and um, the BlackBerry was really the thing. And so I to me it was converting sort of the voice communication to a BlackBerry. So it was being able to like get the voicemail into your, in essence, your BlackBerry so you could type back. And so we started that up. And, and so what's, what's interesting, if you look at the career, I mean, so voice over IP taught me how to run a big uh, network until like, you know, a communication network. Yeah. And then doing this, um, you know, voicemail to text business really taught me how to, you know, do algorithms and how to like, you know, basically take big data sets and convert them into, you know, like it, that, that's how you more accurately uh, transcribe something is you sort of like, you know, it's all com- computational and cloud. And so I really learned kind of step-by-step step sort of how to, in essence, if you look at Ring, it's a, it's an amalgamation of these things. Um, you know, Ring's really at, at the core base of Ring. It's a very, very large video conferencing network. So who, who who were you getting to finance this stuff? How were you backing it at that point? So at that point, I, I put a little bit of money in that I had from from the telecom business, um, and I, I took on a partner uh, okay. in that company to to finance it and then raise some money. So and how did that one end up? Was that a was that a success? Uh, you know, uh, ish. I mean, it, we 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 sold it to a small public company in the in uh, Silicon Valley for you know kind of what we had in it. Yeah. Um, and got that money back. Uh, so I, 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 I paid the investors back. Um, it wasn't, it was the, the best lesson out of the best business lesson out of that one is if you go into a large industry, that's declining, it's very hard to get your money out of it. So yeah. no matter how big, like, so voicemail, I'm like, well, voicemail is so big, you know, even today, like there's actually still a lot of voicemail messages left. Yeah. The problem is, does anyone want to buy a company 
that's reinventing a process that is sort of, in essence, even if it's not real, like it doesn't matter if it's real or not, like in your hearts and minds is declining. Like everyone thinks it's going away. And so it was very hard to sort of innovate enough to actually make money out of the business. So when did you start going back to your, um, your back cave, back to the garage and really, really kind of tinkering with new ideas? Yeah. So I did one more startup called unsubscribe.com, which yeah. the idea was to clean up your email. It's still one of the greatest products I think I've ever sort of touched. Uh, worse, like terrible business. Okay. Um, Why is that? Just no one wanted to pay for it. You know, it was like, it was, it solved a real problem, but there was no way to make money out of it without being, I, and again, this is where mission came into play is like the mission of the company was to clean up your email. And, and to like sort of really like for the customer, like it was, I've always been, I, I think as an inventor, customer focused. And what I realized with unsubscribe.com is the only way I could see to make money out of it, maybe someone else could figure it out, but I couldn't, was in essence to work with the people that you were trying to sort of unsubscribe from to get them back into a clean inbox. Like okay. you, you kind of had to, in essence, do the thing you were trying not to do because that was the value. Like, so, right. so in essence, you almost had to resell you, you, you would have had to have resold your customer. I mean, which is not the vision or the dream of the company. Like I was trying to like stop this stuff and clean your inbox and stand for you. And so no one really wanted to pay for it on the customer side. And then the only people that did want to pay for it were the people that we were trying to sort of get out of your inbox. Yeah. And so I just decided we ended up selling that one again. I got my investors, their money back. So it's a good trend here. You know, like I, I, I work really hard build a cool product and then sell it for the exact money I have in it and don't make yeah. anything. So it's like a kind of a, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's the, I, w- I wasn't really on the path to huge success at the time. Were, were there any, along the way, were there any kind of sliding doors moments that you had those, um, had to make a gut call on any, anyone offer you kind of big jobs to, to go join other companies or, you know, not, not really. I don't think I had, no, I, like, it's funny. It's, it's, I think I was just kind of like, I, I, I don't think anyone saw me as someone that was like that interesting at the time to, to do that. So I was just kind of, you know, hobbling along. So how old are you at this point? Uh, so I was like 34 going on to 35. Yeah. And so that's the kind of point in your life when perhaps you started to think about the future a bit more, you're no longer the young gun in his twenties. You've got to start to maybe have the big hit. Was there a bit of pressure in that direction? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the big hit. I think, cause you, I think the big hit you're talking about is like the, the business financial hit. Um, yeah. I think what was upsetting me and I, I really had never set out. I mean, I think from the big decision out of college, I mean, I, I, I decided not to sort of pursue money and to pursue sort of what I thought was going to be sort of more fulfilling. Um, and again, money is very important. So I'm not, I'm not trying to like downplay that, but, but I really, I, I, I liked solving problems. I liked building product. And I think the most frustrating thing was I kept building these little products that no one ever used at scale. Um, You know, like to me, like an inventor is like an artist. Like you want people to see the artwork. You want people to like talk about it, to love it. And so if it, no one really, you know, if you build a great product and no one uses it, it doesn't matter how great the product was. Like you didn't accomplish the mission of an inventor. And so I was really frustrated that, you know, people kept saying, oh, he's like kind of a cute, like pat me on the head, like a serial entrepreneur. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm just a frustrated inventor that can't seem to get anything to scale. Yeah. And that is when I said, I'm going to go to the garage. And I mean, li- and literally like the garage, like I'm going to go like to my, in my house, to the garage, I had this little garage in the back of the house. And I'm just going to like work on things and try to build things 
Because one thing I realized is I would, get, I would get into the business too quickly with something. So I'd have an idea. And then once you're in the business, you can't sort of, I look at it as like railroad tracks. Mm. You know, it, it's like, it's not a road. You can't turn right and left. Once you're on the railroad track, like it goes where the railroad track goes. Like the train doesn't, you know, get to sort of make its own decisions. And, yeah. and so I like what I wanted to do is like keep the, keep it in a car and like be nimble and be able to turn and do whatever. And then once you, once you realize it's like, you know, once like it got to that point, then put it on the railroad track, that's fine. Cause at some point you do have to have that focus and that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, sort of one direction. So what were the early drafts then? If we were imagining you as this kind of artist novelist character, what, what, what did you start out with? I mean, we had a, a gardening startup, uh, like this idea that you'd grow, um, it, it, snap, it was called Snap Garden. And so the yeah. idea was there's these tiles that you snap together that you could then grow like tomatoes and grass okay. on your patio. So like li- if you were living in a city, um, that on your patio, you'd like click these tiles together, one would have water in it. Um, and so it was all sort of like, not automated electronically, but really just, you know, sort of like built to sort of, keep it all going. So that was an idea. We had this, um, another idea of conference calls that it would go on your calendar. Um, it was called pokety poke. Uh, okay. I was always late on conference calls. Uh, yeah. and so it would call you when you had the conference call and actually dial you into the conference call. Right. Um, that could have been interesting in this, in this year we've had, it, it might've been very, yeah, that might've that might been, that, that could have had a resurgence this year. Yeah. yeah that, that one, that one would have been okay. It could go wrong though. If you were in a compromising scenario and it automatically connected you to your entire board. Or yeah. <laughs> so those ones didn't quite land then. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, you know, we were kind of, it, they were all like, you know, I'd say moving along, but nothing was no, nothing great. And I had a bunch of other ideas I wanted to work on as well. And so it was just, Really, it was like myself and, and two kind of interns in my garage, um, who, by the way, both are still with us today uh, at Ring. Yeah. So they, 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 they're still here. Um, but just, just, I mean, truly tinkering. I mean, truly like, tink- I mean, really just building stuff. That must have been fun. That sounds like a very fulfilling, without having to worry about the kind of the business end of it. It sounds like it's, it's exciting. It's childlike. It was kind of like the two worlds. It was the, that that when you're in the garage, it was fun and exciting, and like you could just. But then there was the other side, which is you know I had a, a young child who was three. Mm. Um, you know my wife had a great job, but still like I wanted to like you know I like wasn't probably enough for us to so like to fully keep going. And so there was a stress of like if I don't build something that works, like I will run out of money at some point. And so it. it, it there was sort of both of those sides of it, but it was, I mean, looking back, I think it was, you know, like anything, it was more exciting than it probably was in it because of the stress of, you know, trying to figure something out. Then Doorbot comes along and, and how did that come about? So I'm in the garage and, and people are coming to the house to, to visit and packages, you know, all of the normal stuff that happens. And I can't hear the doorbell in the garage I tried to buy one of those cheap, uh, like little doorbell buttons with the remote, like wireless ding. Um, but you know, they, they didn't reach to the garage. Like it just wouldn't like the, the signal wouldn't reach there. And so I started like kind of looking into, and I, I literally was looking for a, I just like, I had a new iPhone. Um, this is now like 2011. Um, and it was, why wouldn't the doorbell go to my phone? Why wouldn't you know, why, why can't I see the person at the front door and tell them to leave the package or tell them I'm coming down to open the door and get them. And so I just 
I, I couldn't find, I mean, I thought it would exist. So it's from the inventor side. It's funny. I, I didn't think I was inventing it because I thought it was so obvious that it was out yeah. there. Um, it wasn't out there. And so I just kind of started hacking it together in the garage on the weekends. So I guess the equivalent is if you, I mean, if you go to block of flats, they would have had something similar with a little camera and an interface sometimes, but there was nothing. Exactly. So exactly. If you went to, yeah. So like multi-dwelling units, places that had, yeah, would have some sort of a, you know, some of them had camera systems and intercoms to let people in. So what did your first kind of hack together prototype look like? Was it just a a webcam and a, I don't know, what did it do? So exactly. So I I bought a, 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 at the time it was still early webcam, webcams were kind of early even, but I bought an Mm -hmm. early webcam. Um, I just kind of literally just soldered a bunch of stuff together, um, you know, kind of hacked the system to sort of make it alert me uh, when someone would come up and it was huge. I mean, it was this, this massive sort of, you know, thing that I strapped onto my front door. It was horrible looking and, you know, you, you would have thought my wife would have like, you know, hit it with a crowbar and taken it off. But when I showed her what it was and how it worked, she actually loved it because she liked, we were, you know, living in a small house right on the street. And she liked the idea that it gave us the ability to see who's there without having to like sort of go to the door and be in that sort of compromised position. So what was the kind of the realization point? When did you work out that this could be more than just something you wanted? Other people might like one too. When my wife liked it that was a bit like a slight aha but still it was my wife and she said like i really like it you know one of your better things you've invented i was like okay but i didn't really think i still thought it was so obvious that it wasn't really an invention so i kind of played with it and then we put it for pre-sale i mean this is the time when kickstarter and indiegogo were kind of starting to really get going yeah and so we put it for pre-sale and it was this woman that bought it. I mean, there's a lot of things that obviously ha- like there's a lot of little moments, but the one that just sticks out for me is this woman in Northern California bought it and said, my neighbor was robbed. They're broken into their house was broken into someone came, rang the doorbell. You know, they weren't home. Um, they, they broke into the house and stole their stuff. I'm worried about that. So I'm buying this so that if I'm out of the house, I can answer the door and act like I'm home. Yeah. And, we had always thought that that was like, you know, the important thing of the product. But one thing I learned with all these other businesses is you can't, ex- you don't have the, the right to explain to someone what your business does. And what yeah. I mean by that is it's so expensive to if a new product, a new service. It's so expensive, like unsubscribe.com. And I really was able to sit and explain it to someone. They're like, I want that. I love it. But it's so expensive to do that, that as a business, you can't afford it. And so with, with DoorBot at the time, which became Ring, what was amazing is that like people saw what it could do for them without us having to sort of tell them. Yeah. Um, like they saw how it transformed the doorbell into something that was way more valuable. And that was my aha of, wow, if people can see how valuable this is, then we can sell this without, you know, spending a hundred million dollars on marketing day one. So you'd almost envisaged it just as a kind of, um, I don't know, a bit of a time saver or a kind of hack around the fact that you happen to be in a different room. But they people started to realize there were multiple uses and their own uses that you hadn't anticipated. It kind of took on a life of its own, I guess. It, it definitely did. I mean, I, I did, you know, I did invent it originally to sort of hack my garage life. And then my wife was the one who said, you know, this, this kind of saw that 
yeah, that other side of it, which got us kind of excited about it. And then when we saw that the market understood that, that was the, you know, the, the most exciting thing. And that's really, you know, the real invention that, that created Ring that built the company was not the doorbell. It wasn't the product. It was us embracing the mission of making neighborhoods safer. And, and that the, the mission of making neighborhoods safer, that was actually the invention that led the company to, uh, you know, where it is today and the success. So you raised money via something called Christie Street, which you actually set up yourself, a kind of Kickstarter for products, I guess, electrical products. So at the time, Kickstarter wasn't allowing electrical products on their site. And so, again, I was, this is, we were in this lab and we were trying to build stuff. And I said, well, maybe we should do a Kickstarter for electrical products. Like maybe, like maybe that's a, a business. And so that was Christie Street. And we said, what should we throw on it? And it's like, it's like one of those moments where like everyone kind of looks and it's like this big doorbell is like sitting on my front door. It's like, let's throw that on it. You know, yeah. it's like, like we all seem to like that thing. And so that was an afterthought, which at the time I said, I would have said we would have been probably if you had asked everyone around the table, then we would have thought Christie street would have been the bigger business and that the doorbell thing would have been something we would have, you know, sold off or like at best would have, you know, kind of let someone else take it and sell some doorbells. Yeah. So how many did you sell then in the first, in your first kind of, I don't know, six months? In the first six months, I think it was almost a million dollars in the first six months. Wow. Just on um, Christie Street alone. Yeah. Which was, I mean, again, it was crazy because here's this site that we like kind of just made up Yeah. Um, with this product that's on my front door. And, you know, now we're selling, you know, it was, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars a month and it just wow. kept coming in too. Like it, 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 it didn't, you know, we did the 30 day sale. And then it just, we just kept pre-selling. Like it just, people kept buying it. How were people finding out about Doorbot or Ring? You know, I think it, it, again, the luck of the time is like the timing of our business was just at this point when the press was looking, when people were looking for like the, you know, smartphones were now every day, mm. literally like, you know, feature phones, which, you know, like for maybe some of the younger audience, I don't even know what those are anymore. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, there were phones that didn't have screens, um, but, you know, smartphones every day were sort of, you know, outpacing and those feature phones were going away. And so with that, people were looking for things to do on them, which meant the press was looking to talk about that, which meant, so all of the, like, you know, I talked about that wave that when I graduated college in 1999, the wave had already sort of missed me on this one, the wave is forming behind me and just kind of pushing us. And so, you know, we were right place, right time. It just allowed us to do you know, to, to get a lot of that and a lot of that momentum. Part of the story, of course, is your appearance on Shark Tank, which we uh, we call it Dragon's Den over here. Yes. And it's got a bit of a cult following. I'm a big fan. We've had a few dragons on, on the podcast. How did that come about? I mean, it's mostly an incredible marketing opportunity, especially over there where you must have, I don't know, tens of millions potentially viewers. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge show in the U.S. I mean, it's a huge global sort of phenomenon. Um, and again, to what I was just saying is like everyone was, you know, the the momentum was with us. You know, people liked the idea of the product, even if, even if it wasn't out yet, just talking about it because it was it was inventive and it was new and it could go to your new phone. And so it was like this whole sort of the momentum. And uh, I ran into a friend who literally you know, had talked to a producer who had emailed them saying they're looking for sort of bigger products. They wanted, you know, they did, they'd done a lot of, I don't know how it is in, in Dragon's Den, but 
they kind of been doing a lot of very small, like, uh, you know, a cookie company or this, like, yeah. you know, like, and they wanted to kind of go to the next level of company. Like they wanted to sort of go up a little bit. So they were looking for sort of, I think, more mature companies or things that were doing like what we were doing. And so I emailed this producer and they, you know, again, to this whole momentum, it was like, they were excited to have a product on that showed this kind of invention um, and said, yeah, like, you know, come on the show. And, and that was, I mean, definitely life-changing, game-changing for, at the time, Doorbot, but going into Ring. And, and the, it was the credibility and awareness. You're right. I mean, it was you know, tens of millions or whatever, you know, it probably affected even more than that from word of mouth and everything else. So how does the show actually work? What's the process from them saying, okay, come on the show to you appearing? How long, how long is that period and what do you do? And it's a great sort of question because it's like, you think it's like, come on the show, you go on the show and like life changes. It's, it's, you know, I I thought that's what it was when the guy said, you know, when when I talked to the producer and he said, you should come on and then it's, you know, okay, yeah, come on, but fill out this application. Okay. Fill out this application. All right. Now three different companies have to approve you. And then there's like this patent thing. And, you know, with ours, there was, you know, it was a very sort of a product in a new category and there, what about this patent? What is it like, we almost got thrown out for that. And then, you go to get on the show and they give you these like producers that work with you. Um, And so you, I said to them, like, they said, how do you want the set? And I said, I think we should have this fake house and whatever. And they said, great, go build it. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I go build it. They said, yeah, we don't do anything. So then you're building this set and it cost me like $8,000, which at the time was a fortune. That was out of your pocket to build the the set. hundred percent. Yeah. So people, people could go on, and probably do go on Shark Tank and then come out at a net loss a lot of the time. Oh, for sure. For sure. Wow. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, the focus, like I took it as if it was any, you know, I, I always look at it as like an a, Olympic athlete. So it's like a, I'm a, I'm a you know, a, a track star who was going to go to the Olympics. And so you train for, you know, they train for many, many more years, but I trained for this. I sort of set it up in the backyard. I I had hundreds of questions that friends were asking me. I really wanted to like do great on the show. I I also, I did want to raise money. I mean, I needed cash, um, but I really also wanted to sort of do great. And so if you look at just the time we took out the money, it was a huge bet. We then go to the first day when they're filming, they do it in like sections um, and we go and we do like a, you do like kind of a mock thing up there and you find out that actually, you know, only a certain percentage of people that film actually get on the air. Yeah. So, so now I'm like, Oh, oh this is scary. Like now, <laughs> you know, all this work, the $8,000 thing, all this stuff, like it could just, and I've met a lot of people now that have gone on that never got on the air. Like they're just, their wow. segment wasn't sort of exciting enough to be on TV. So talk me through the moment when you walk out and the lights come on you and, and you know, the cameras are rolling. Are you a natural performer? Was that terrifying or quite fun? Uh, It was, it was terrifying because of the risk. I I think if they had said like a hundred percent, you're going to be on TV in terms of like the segment will air, Mm. that would have taken off a huge stress. Um, the, also they, they forced me that I had to do a live demo of the product and the product was just not working right. I mean, it was just not there yet. And so now I have like the stress of, is it going to get on the air? Um, there's also like timing, like they're very rushed for time when you're setting up and doing everything. It's like, it's, if you do anything outside of like your time, they just cut you. 
Um, because I mean, and to be fair to them, like they have to film, you know, a lot of segments in a day and it's, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's, you know, their production costs a lot of money. So it's not just like, they're not being jerks. It's just, there's just a lot of pressure on them as well. And so, yeah, I, I get out there to do this, which is, which is frightening. And then I had to go do this live demo, which sort of was not really working well. And my tech guys around the, behind the thing, trying to like manage the internet and you can imagine how much it's still the worst environment ever. I mean, the amount of Wi-Fi and, and, yeah. and wireless signals and interference from cameras and like, yeah, it's, it's impossible to make something work in there. And uh, it, it did end up working, but I mean, I, 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 that's the point I remember. I remember in my head when I pressed the button and I showed it on the phone and it came up, like, I think I could feel the steam coming out of like my ears, you know, <laughs> like the, the stress just like sort of, you know, like that was where I at least felt like, you know, I'm not yeah. going to die. Do you ever watch the clip back now? Have you seen it since? I've seen it a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty fun to watch. Um, you know, it, it is, I haven't seen it in a while. In fact, I'll, I'll probably now, like now you reminded me, I'll, I'll watch it again. Cause it, it is kind of, uh, it's, it's amazing just to look back and think like where, you know, where things were then. They, they, they didn't invest. How, how close did they come to, to giving you money? You know, the, the sharks over there, I mean, they, you know, I, I don't know how like dragons in exactly, but the, the whole key to the show is having that interaction with the entrepreneur. And so all the sharks drop out basically from the, from investing. They're just like, I'm out, I'm out. I'm out. And I'm sitting there. Oh my gosh. Like that's the, they need this sort of back and forth. And then the one shark gives me like this terrible deal um, that I, you know, I, it was alone with my thing. I mean, it was, just, it was a horrible, horrible deal. And I just, I, I actually needed the money. So I, I did really like try to negotiate him to even get like a slightly less horrible deal. Uh, he wouldn't do it. And I, I, um, his name's Mr. Wonderful, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Kevin O'Leary. And so I just, I just, uh, I we just dropped out and, and so left without a deal, which I, I had hoped Mark Cuban, um, who's, you know, one of the richer sharks on there. I had hoped that, and he's a tech person. Like I had hoped he was going to invest and he, he, he was out like immediately within like minutes of the taping. I imagine there was a big lag between the taping and actually seeing it airing. What happened on the evening that it came out? Was it kind of an immediate, you know, I don't know, hundred thousand orders or. So, so yeah, you have this lag in between. They, they don't tell you if it's going to air until they literally just call you like two weeks before and they say, hi, this is, you know, Jennifer from shark tank. You're going to go on in two weeks. Thanks. Right. Bye. Like, that's like, I mean, it's, it's, there's really like no bedside manner. It's just kind of like, boom, boom, like, great. And so, yeah, we go on the air and I thought, you know, I talked to people who said like we'd done a million in sales and not super directly. So I didn't have like the direct information from other people, but like, you know, anecdotally what people had done. And so I, you know, it's it sort of wake up the next morning from it and it was, the sales were okay. I think it was like a hundred thousand or something, but it wasn't like, it, it, it wasn't, going to, you know, pay for, it wasn't going to like change the direction of the business. I mean, it was, it was good. It was like, you know, it was a great, you know, happy, but it wasn't crazy. And I thought that that was it. So I like kind of went to breakfast that morning and excited that we were on shark tank. And, but I thought, wow, that was like that, you know, we put a lot of work into that. I mean, an $8,000 said, uh, you know, all this stuff. And if that's all we got back, like that's, that's a, that's going to be tough. And then like at breakfast, like, you know, order came in. And at that point I had the orders, every order would come to my email. 
So like, you know, it's like ding, ding, ding. So I'm like, wow, they're still coming in. That's crazy. And then it's like lunch, like ding, ding, you know, by dinner, like ding, ding. And so we actually, I think did more the second day than the first day. And what we realized is people record the show and they watch it later. And so that, you know, and then it just, just literally the sales kept coming all week. And then the next week, and then that started this, you know, again, more of the flywheel of the press writing about it. And so it just, it just really kept us rolling. So it was all going pretty well. And then in the run up to Christmas that year, I think it was, there was a, an unexpected glitch. I say that very ominously, but it was pretty yeah, bad. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, uh, so, so it was going, yeah, it was going pretty well in terms of like sales were coming in, uh, working on the tech. The, the things were kind of working okay. Like it was, it was, a, I mean, still very like, you know, cash constrained, very early startup, especially for something making consumer electronics. So very tough place, but we're kind of going, we're going, we're going. And then, you know, we hit, uh, or so, so we're going Shark Tank in November. Um, we started shipping product. It just happened that we were ready to start shipping product right after that. So we shipped out our first batch of product, which was like what we had in the warehouse, which was small. Mm. And then um, we, one of our engineers said, we can increase the, you know, make the video quality better by doing X, Y, and Z on the firmware on the device. So we sent that that code to the factory and said, Hey, put this on the next units. And they said, great, we'll do that. And at the time we didn't have it wired up where you could change the code on this chip from the internet. So once it was on there, it was done. Like once, once these settings were on there, they were done. And so we get these in from China, everyone's screaming, where's my order? Where's my order? It's Christmas. So we say like, I'm like, just ship them out, just get them in, ship them out. And so we shipped out like, it was millions of dollars worth of doorbots um, you know, we're very excited. I'm taking pictures like on the loading dock, like here's all your doorbots going out. You know, it's like, great. And we start to receive emails saying like, like from people who got it early, like those shipments that they got saying like, it just doesn't work. And, you know, it had been it, like, certainly like they, they were tough. I mean, they were, you know, on Wi-Fi. like there's lots of issues you could have, but they, these were literally just not working. Like they, the, wow. the video would come up and it would just be like blur. Um, wow. And we had never seen that before. And so we're like, what the heck? And so we're, ch- we're, we're, of course, testing the ones we have. And we're like, it's working fine. Like, you know, nothing's wrong. And so all of a sudden we take one out of this batch yeah, and we see the exact same thing. And so we trace it back to, we realize that this engineer who had sent this code to get tested had actually never tested these, these specs that he thought he had changed the specs. He hadn't when he tested them. Yeah. And so when, what he thought was actually like the right thing was just random. He ended up just basically sending these random settings to change to the factory. And now we have, you know, a, 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 at least a million dollars of uh, plus of stuff out in the field that is just trash. I mean, yeah. it, you know, there's just, it's, we can't change the settings on it. It's not sending any video and you know, it's, it, it was, it was a, it was definitely a game over moment. Yeah. Well, it was then what, what was going through ahead as the options? I mean, how could you've got out of it? So, I mean, I, there was really, and it's funny, I, I'm usually, I, I get very passionate and excited and even sometimes like, I'd say like lightly yell when things are going on. So I'm a, I'm a passionate kind of person, but yeah. when this kind of stuff happens, I actually get very quiet and calculated. And so like right. when something real like this, like when I like, like, and I, I'll say this is like near death. And I mean that from the, the 
business side, you know, I actually get very like quiet and calculated. And so I was really just going through everything of what can we do? I mean, like, you know, and, and I was just like, can we change this? Can we do this? Like, I was just very methodical. Can we bring them back and just unsolder this one chip and solder the chip back down? Because the problem was now is you have all these products out there. If I have to replace them, I can't afford, yeah. like I literally, I can't afford to just buy a million dollars worth of product, ship it, ship this stuff back, like swap them out. I mean, I, I, yeah, the company was barely alive at this point. It didn't like it had like an extra million dollars just sitting there to do this. And so we went through like every kind of checklist and no one could come up with anything that said, this is the way out. Um, you know, it's just, we, we, we were trying stuff in the lab, like, but you know, no one could figure out a way to get out of it. So it was this like, almost like a calmness to the end of just like, I, I kind of went home and I, I you know, I told my wife, I said, like, the, the thing's already over and we're going to lose all our money. Um, and, and I'll never forget. I mean, like, this is like, you know, this is like one of those moments, but she said, well, we can mortgage the house and you could use that money to trade them out. And I said, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if it, like, I don't think it's enough. Like it was an amazing thing. Cause it's like, here, I just said, like, we're going to die. Like, and it was like, well, let's, let's like, let's lose everything we have. Like, let's really lose everything. And it's like, it wasn't even enough to cover it, but it was just so like, and, and at this point, I'm not really believing in myself either. Like I, I would, you know, I wanted to run. Um, and so it was this like just amazing moment. And, you know, again, I'll say to that clarity, I just kept thinking, I kept going through and thinking and thinking. And one thing we had changed in the back end, so in the, in the cloud, there was this like expensive system we were using, like a piece of software for the video. And we had swapped it out for this less expensive, like a kind of an open source software yeah. You know, just to sort of, you know, we, the, the expensive one we started with, like when we were like using like one, one camera, but we didn't want to pay licenses. And so we did this open source and it was fine. It like worked fine. It wasn't any different. Um, but the expensive one was able to translate a lot more like different types of video and everything else. And I called my, the tech guy, the guy who had been actually behind the house and shark tank. Um, <laughs> and I said, you know, what, have, what, have, what do you think if we use the, the expensive thing like that, the sort of the licensed video thing, do you think it would be able to translate whatever this sort of crap we're sending into the cloud into a video? And he said, like, he's like, I, I, you know, he had no idea. He's like, I don't know. Um, it's worth a try. It's going to take me all night. So this is like, you know, nine o'clock at night. And, you know, it's not like you don't just like sort of turn it on it. Like, so he worked all like literally like all night long. And this is now Christmas. Uh, e so this is, the night before Christmas Eve. Yeah. So the morning of Christmas Eve, he calls me. And I mean, it's like 8 a.m., I, I, you know, or 7 a.m., like it was early and um, kind of wakes me up and he's like screaming. He's like, <laughs> they, you know, I don't, I don't know what you can say on your podcast, but like they <laughs> effing work, like they effing work, you know, it's like, and, you know, it, it is the, like a Christmas miracle. Like, yeah. it, like it, it, you know, and, and so now we went from, no option but death to, <laughs> Hey, just email all the customers and tell them they all work now. Wow. Incredible. So, yeah, <laughs> that was, that was it. And I'll, I still remember spending Christmas with my family. That, that Christmas is definitely the, 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 the most, the best Christmas we've ever had for sure. <laughs> Incredible. I'm so glad it ended up well. You must sometimes think what would have happened had, had that not, had that not happened. Had you not had that kind of last ditch, idea. We definitely made it through a lot of tough times. 
I think it could have been the end. Yeah. Well, it's not the end, of course. And for, you've kind of gone from strength to strength from then on, I think it's fair to say. I want to talk a little bit about the Amazon acquisition. That's kind of the, the big yep. news of the last year or so. Tell me how that came about and, and what it's like going from a, a small startup that's kind of quick on its feet to working for the biggest tech company in the world, essentially. So Amazon was, we had been working with Amazon on their, you know, Alexa with their APIs to be able to be on their, their display ones. We started working with them early on that. So we had a little bit of um, been working with Amazon and kind of learned who they were. They learned who we were. We liked each other. And then at, at basically at some point they just said, you know, we think, you know, it'd be, we, we would like to kind of combine forces. And I had always told them if there was any company I wanted to sell to, it was Amazon. And it was really, it, it holds true today. It was true then that, you know, big companies to your point, you know, it's hard to move fast. It's hard to be entrepreneurial. And I, you know, Amazon, you know, again, it is a big company and it's not perfect, but as big companies go, I think it's as entrepreneurial, as inventive and as backing of a mission yeah. as any sort of large company I've ever seen. And I wanted to, I didn't want to sell in terms of cash out, um, I mean, that's fine. I mean, it was, it was, you know, I'm not going to say it wasn't good, but I wanted to continue to work. I wanted to continue to, on the mission. I wanted to continue to build it. And, mm. you know, the one thing Amazon really promised us is allowing us to continue to build it and not only allowing us, but really supporting us to, to build it even better. And, and that's what we've been able to do since we have been acquired is, you know, if you look at every metric in the business, you know, we deliver a better product to our neighbors, which what we call our customers uh, today than we ever have before. So for for kind of, I don't know, 20 years almost from the moment you turned down that safe Wall Street job, yeah. you've always been kind of tiptoes on the bottom of the swimming pool, if you know what I mean. And then yep. suddenly yep. there must have been a lovely, I don't know, safety net around you. Was there a moment when when the deal was signed and you'd, and you'd signed all the paperwork when you could finally relax? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's a weird, it is a weird thing because I, I lent from like really my whole life. I mean, my, my, you know, my family was like middle class, but not, you know, we weren't like, you know, we weren't ex like exceptionally wealthy or anything, um, you know, to like, I always sort of was able to make it, but I never really had any security. Um, I mean, I do remember, you know, after the deal for a couple months, you know, just kind of refreshing the bank account <laughs> and just like, is it still real? Like I'd wake up and just feel like it's not like, like, I was going to be like, you know, uh, whatever, like working a normal job and this was all a dream and I was just going to wake up and, you know, it was all over. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, it luckily was not, or has not so far. So that's good. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, but I think the, the important thing, I mean, like, you know, is, is to, you know, we still have a mission of what we do. We still work very hard for our customers I still stay focused on that. And I think it's, you know, you know, staying humble and stay and continuing to work for your customers, I think is a, is an important thing to do, like, you know, for your own, like your own good. So that's yeah. kind of where, it's where I keep my focus. I mean, that's where I'm kind of, you know, like every day, that's my, where I am. And I, I, I'm obsessed with names because I think there's, there's a lot in names. So at what point did you switch from Doorbot to Ring? What brought that about? Yeah, you know, Doorbot was... Uh, two guys, two interns and myself in a garage, you know, like, what should we call this thing? It's like a door robot, you know, it's like so cool door bot, you know, it was, it was such a, like a very uh, techie kind of fun, you know, what we thought was a great name. I still like, I like the name is like, you know, for what it was. Yeah. Um, but when you're trying to sell something that goes on someone's house and it goes in there, you know, people have this, 
you know, it, when they have a house, they have a picture of it in their head of how nice it is and the locks on it and the door and the colors. And, you know, you care about your house and how it looks. And so it's almost like feel this beautiful picture with the birds chirping and then like store-bought comes in. It like, it like punches you in the face, you know, it's yeah. like the worst name you've ever heard for that. And so we realized very quickly that we needed a name that kind of fit the brand, fit the mission, but also fit your home. Yeah. Um, and what was great about ring, you know, it, it obviously at the time was the ring doorbell, you know, ring. I mean, the doorbell was very simple on that, but it was about the rings of security around your neighborhood, the rings of security around your house. It was this sort of this alternate meeting, meaning that allowed us to build around the brand as well as the doorbell. It's really nice. It's a lovely name. And it's one of those names that seems so obvious, but probably actually wasn't that obvious at the start. You know, so it was, I was at a meeting with an angel investor and I was telling them sort of, you know, we're trying to do all this stuff and the mission and, and, you know, we're, our names, you know, now Dorbot, he knew that, but I said like, we're looking for, we, we need a new name. And he, he said to me, you keep saying the word ring, like the rings of security, like not, not just the ring doorbell. Why don't you just call it ring? And it was this non-obvious name at the time because it seemed just so, I don't know, generic. It was like weird. It was like, didn't have that something like that you'd think a name would have. So it is interesting that it was like, even that was not an aha yeah. moment. Um, it certainly grew quickly from there as I kind of thought about it more and more, it was like, yeah, this is, this is a good name. Um, but I remember even a friend, I told him I was buying the domain name and using basically the, the last of our money to do that. And we're going to call it ring. And I remember this friend of mine, who's a smart guy in business. And he said like, that's the worst decision I've ever heard of anyone making. <laughs> wow. So, so yeah, yeah it, it wasn't, it, wasn't. <laughs> but, it worked out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out it wasn't, but yeah. I want to ask you the, the kind of more personal questions, the more fun questions maybe Yes. about Jamie himself. So I wonder, this one's maybe quite poignant for you with that hedge fund manager's words ringing in our ears. What would you be doing if you weren't running Ring now? Yeah, I'd hope I'd be inventing products or services. And to me, like a product service, whether it's physical or, you know, an app, um, but it's something that is used widely by a lot of people and also uh, does something beneficial for the world. What's your worst habit? My worst habit. Let's see. I'm not a bad drinker. Well, I'm a bad drinker, but I don't do it that often. So I guess <laughs> okay. it's not a habit. Um, you know, I don't know if I, it's funny, a bad habit. I don't mm. know if I have like a really bad habit. Um, I must have something. I mean, I snore at night. My wife doesn't like that. I don't know if that's a habit though. <laughs> no, you can't really control that one. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, probably, you know, probably my, my worst habit is the the phone, um, you know, and I've tried really with, with uh, being, you know, home and the, the lockdowns, it made it a lot worse early on, which is like, you're, you know, you're with your family, but you're not with them. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're on your device and you're not listening. And so I've really tried to sort of make a, I guess that is probably the habit I've tried to break actually is, is trying to really control when I'm on it and when I'm not. And so when yeah. I'm on it, I'm on it. Like, you know, I'll, I'll go and do texts or emails, but trying not to sort of be in this gray area place where you're kind of always sort of half on it. Yeah. Is that a kind of, when you, when you, obviously you've got lots of employees now, do you try and instill that in them? Because at startups, the temptation is to be always on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but that can sometimes lead to burnout. Are you quite good on that kind of stuff? 
I, I think I'm okay with it. I mean, I am 24 seven. I do like to, I like what I do and I like, you know, I, my email's on every box and it's my mm. real email. It goes to my phone. And so, you know, at eight o'clock at night, if I'm on the couch, like I'll, a lot of times be responding to customers. Yeah. Um, but I, I like, I, I enjoy it. I, I like the, what we're doing. I like what we're doing for people. Like I really do kind of enjoy that. And I think what we try to surround ourselves with at ring are people that, that like that. So it's it, hopefully they're balanced. And I always yet yeah, for sure, like, you know, spend time with your children or whatever, but hopefully you will like what you do enough that you're not burning yourself out because it's yeah. part of the joy of what you're doing every day. What's the most impressive thing you can cook? I wouldn't say I'm a great cook. My my favorite uh, thing I cook is uh, I take Doritos. Wow. Uh, and this is maybe gross people out. Doritos. <laughs> and then I do tomato sauce and uh, and Parmesan and Gruyere cheese on top of it and make okay. like almost like a pizza out of Doritos and even some uh, crumbled sausage if I'm like, you know, if I have time. Wow. You're in, you're in very good shape, Jamie, but that diet, <laughs> you can't do that every day. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do run basically every day. So that's good. Uh, what are you most proud of in your career so far? Um, you know, I, I think that the, it's some of the stories that we have from Ring, um, probably the most proud one. And again, it's about making neighborhoods safer. But I think the most proud one I have is there was a family in their home they were redoing their house. They had these like rags and stuff that, you know, were turpentine and like these, and they had put it outside of their front door uh, in a garbage pail and the, it, it caught fire. Um, and the ring, it's not made to do this, but because of the motion detection uses heat, mm. it actually kept going off because it kept seeing this heat movement, which is fire. So it's, uh, I'm not trying to like tell someone to buy it to detect fire, but it did, it detected it. Their whole family was inside. Um, they got out of the house and, you know, if it wasn't, for that because of how the fire was and burning around the house. Yeah. Like I, you know, it, it really was high likelihood it was going to end very badly and there was little kids in there. And so like that one's just, you know, when you, when you realize you build something that, you know, possibly like really save someone's life. Um, yeah. Like that's what makes it like to me, like that's, that's why you should, it's why I always say like, I think having a mission as a company is so valuable because that is so much like brings so much more joy and so much more, energy to me than money could ever do. And, and I think that's for a lot. I think most people are like that. I think money is great. It's a great short-term motivator, but when you're able to do something that affect people, like affects people's lives, I think that's something that really, um, you know, it's, 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 it's what your team wants to wake up to do in the morning. That's incredible. On the other side of things, what's been your biggest mistake or your biggest kind of failure? Do you think, do you think it was that unlucky glitch around Christmas? I think the the problem with looking at what's your biggest failure is that almost I think every biggest failure has resulted in the biggest success. Like it's learning from those things, and and I think it's even you know as a as a kid I was bullied you know in school uh, a little bit, and it's like would I would I look back and wish I wasn't bullied? You know, probably. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if it was a fun thing, but it also it built character in me. It, you know, it, it, it taught me how to sort of like be myself and who I am and like all those things. And so I think these hardships that happen and it's not easy when they're happening. I mean, no, no you know, I, I don't wish bad things on anyone, but I do think that the failures and the bad things typically, those are the learnings. And if, if our company, you know, that, that, that story of Christmas is what hardened the business so that when yeah. we went through the next thing, it was like, this isn't as bad as that. We can get through this. And so 
it, it created this culture of that we can do this, you know, like no matter what. And I think you need those, those things to happen. So yeah, I, I, I kind of look back, I think everything kind of, I'll say turned out fine for me, both, you know, personally and, you know, business wise. And so I, I think all, I wouldn't change anything just because I, 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 if you change any of those little things, I think, you know, if you didn't have that Christmas thing, I'm not sure if we would have been hardened enough to make it to the next thing and, and get to where we, where we need to go. That's a lovely way to look at it. Very encouraging as well. If, if you could learn one new skill, Jamie, what do you think it would be? Foreign language. I, I would love, you know, to your point, like I traveled the world. Um, partly why I didn't learn another language is I kept going to different countries that spoke different languages. So I never, you know, if I just went to one place that spoke one language, I would have the the focus to sort of, and, and the want to do that one language. The problem was going everywhere. I never did that, but I would love to know. And even like, I, I would say an obscure language. So not one of the top sort of five languages. Like I'd love to, I'd love to know something that's less spoken and go somewhere and sort of speak that local language in that place. Is, is Simonov a Russian or at least a... It is. It's a, a Belarusian. So, so Belarus, uh, Minsk. So that could be the one you could speak Belarusian. That would be, I, I would love to speak Russian. Uh, again, like something that's just not the, like and that's a, a big-ish language in terms of population, but it's something non-obvious that would be fun to just, you know, all of a sudden, if you're sitting like at a cafe with someone and just like you hear someone speaking, you start, you know, no one knows you speak it, you start speaking Russian to someone. Like it'd be kind of, maybe it might scare some people, but it would be kind of fun. Yeah. What was the last piece of advice you gave? I think advice is a toxic thing. Um, and by that, I don't mean learning, I think, is one of the greatest things we can all do. Listening is one of the greatest things we can all do. Teaching, you know, from what we've learned, like, you know, giving the, you know, the examples of what happened in my life. And so people can learn from that. But I think advice, because it's coming from my perspective and your set of circumstances is always going to be different than mine. Yeah. And so if I tell you, you should do this, you know, hey, that ring name is a terrible name. Don't do it. <laughs> you know, the guy that said that to me was you know, he met from his set of examples and things in his life and his perspective, that was the right advice to give. Yeah. Um, but it was terrible advice. And so what I've, what I've learned is I never give advice. I just give the learnings that I've had. And from that, yes, I mean, you could tell which way I would go, but I would never sort of want anyone, you know, someone listening to this, like I wouldn't want someone to follow that exactly because that's what I did. Um, learn from it to use your perspective and then turn that into the decision. What phrase would you like to vanish from the earth? What phrase would I like to vanish from the earth? Probably, probably can't. Okay. Just the word can't. Do people say that a lot of rings? Say, I can't do that, Jamie. I haven't got time. I don't think they do. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think they've learned not to, but, um, I remember, uh, at this little tele, the telecom business, I remember finally putting in a rule there that it, you, you were not allowed to say no to anyone outside of the company without my approval. Wow. <laughs> um, and, and what it did is, is it makes, it is kind of an interesting, I mean, it doesn't work at this scale. And I think there's other ways to get around that. But what I like about it is that, um, you know, if, if you have to go to the, like your boss to say no to someone, you're going to try everything else you can do to get to a yes or to a maybe or to a, a different answer, but you're not going to want to then get to that no. And so I think it is a, it's, it's so easy to say no. I like that a lot. If you could be one age forever, what would you be? Probably like, you know, selfishly, you know, 30 or something, just like, you know, like the perfect sort of health age. I mean, just from that, 
Um, but I do think, you know, there's something so enjoyable as a human of growing and learning, you know, I'm, I'm such a different person today than I was five years ago. And then that I was five years ago, you know, before that. Um, and I do like that journey of like sort of being able to learn. Um, and so I kind of wouldn't want to be trapped because to me, trapping your age would also trap your knowledge. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't want to do that because I think part of life is like that sort of that experience of learning and growing. Yeah. Amazing. What, what have you done recently for the first time? What have I done recently? You know, COVID sort of changes, I think, that, uh, you know. Yeah, less experiences. Less. Yeah, I think you have less, less of those. It's funny, you have less of those types of experiences, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing I did just recently do is uh, I installed one of those like, uh, garage systems, like those fancy systems, but in my shed. Nice. Um, okay. So that was, uh, it, and it's, I got more, I, I did all the electrical work and I did like, I mean, I really like, I had this little shed and I just kind of pimped it out to be like a full, you know, like little workshop and everything and like really nice. And so that was the last, that was like the last four or five weeks of weekends. So you're um, still tinkering. I like to hear that. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's your most treasured possession? Uh, I guess it, not a possession. I mean, definitely my family is like, you know, what, what, what certainly I'd say means the, the most to me. I, I don't really find that much joy. I, I, I like having things, obviously. I mean, I, I would, I, I, but I don't really find that much. I, I find much more joy in travel mm. and in experiences than I do in sort of physical things. Um, if you did have to nail me down on one absolute physical thing that probably is my most happy sort of physical thing that I own would be my backhoe. Um, I have a little farm in Missouri, which is like kind of in the middle of uh, America. It's like out in the middle of nowhere and I have a backhoe on it, you know, which is just like one of these little digging uh, machines. Um, And I I, I sit on that thing and I dig trenches and dig out the lake. And I I think that's probably some of my happiest moments. So if if you nailed me down, that'd probably be my backhoe. That's the most original answer we've heard yet. A digger. (laughs) That is very unique. Yes. <laughs> uh, is there a book that, that you, that's influenced you a lot or that you often recommend to, to other people? I go for a run or a mountain bike ride almost every day. I, I do think physical activity is super important to our like mental health and physical health and, and being able to do it is, is super important. Um, I listen to audiobooks when I do it. So mm. I, I chew through kind of hundreds of books uh, over the last, you know, whatever years. Um, my favorite book is the Walt, uh, Walt Disney biography. Mm. Um, I think it's by Walter Isaacson. It's a, it's like the sort of yeah. the very thick one. Mm. Um, and what I love about it is people, I think it's easier, or at least for me, it was to look back at Walt Disney and Disney world and sort of think that it was this linear, you know, he just kind of came up with all these things. And it was just this like sort of lo- a straight line to success that he was just like, it became successful. And, and it is a, you know, the story of Disney and of, of Walt himself and, and Disney as a company is just super checkered. I mean, it's just mm. up, down. Um, he was really, you know, mentally um, drained by lots of the things and would see the movies and hated them, even the ones that worked because he wanted them to be better. And just all of those emotions of that. And I just was, I love that, like, to me, it's a different, such a different time. So to say, you know, people always say like, well now, and it's like, no, it's like, I think it's always building something big and significant is hard and draining and mentally. And you, you know, even for me, when I put out a product, I always want it to be better. And I always know what we can do next. And it's like that, that drive. And I, I just love that book. And I love 
seeing how he did it, you know, just so long ago, and that it was all the same sort of corollary things to today, that nothing really, you know, the internet and all this stuff didn't change the core emotions of building a business or the, the, the how tough it is. Amazing. I'll have to, to read that or maybe listen to it. It seems a bit daunting. It's a, it's a, it's a really big, it was, it was like a 40 hour audio book or something. It was crazy. It was like, it was like one of the longest, I think I've ever, like these sort of biggest books or longest audio books I've ever done. Do you have a personal motto? Not a personal motto. I think one thing I do live by, and it was in our culture, it was one of the big cultural things at Ring is not to celebrate. Um, wow. and, and, and what I mean by that is not that like I, I'm a happy person and I do like to like, you know, smile and laugh and <laughs> with my family, I'm happy. Like I'm not like, it's not to be miserable, but I think it's to always look at what's the thing you can do next for someone. Um, you know, like when, when, when we had this, you know, when Amazon came in, I was very fortunate. It was like, what can we do charitable for people? Like what, like there's, I think it's when you celebrate, you're celebrating this moment in time and it's as if you control everything and everything's perfect. And I think it's, I like the idea that you're always trying to look forward. So in business, you know, instead of celebrating that you guys, you know, you, you, we hit X dollars in sales. It's like, well, what can we do for our customers forward? Like, yes, we're happy that we hit the sales, but how do we do better for our, how do we do how do we build a better product? How do we, you know, do this? And I think in, in every part of your life, I think if you're kind of looking at that without being miserable, I mean, without being, you know, like you yeah. can have a pop of champagne here and there, but um, I think it's probably what I do live by, which is like, what's, what can I do next that is going to make things good, better, best, that kind of thing. And finally, what's your idea of happiness? It may well be sitting on your little digger. <laughs> I mean, the, the digger is definitely part of it. I think, you know, I think the, the thing that ring brought me the most joy is I can go almost anywhere in the world and I can see my stamp, you know, because I built something that literally sits outside of a home, yeah. um, you know, as an inventor driving through, a you know, a place like Argentina, Brazil and in UK and, you know, anywhere and seeing a ring doorbell on someone's house. Uh, the, the, the sort of the internal warmth I get from just knowing that I was able to, that, that sort of came from it again, a big team helped that happen and everything else. So it's not just me, but being part of something that has been able to put a stamp on the world in that way is, yeah, I think that's, that's probably where I get the most happiness from. Amazing. Jamie, thank you so, so much. It's been wonderful to hear your story. It's one of those ones that's incredibly encouraging because although you're incredibly successful now, there were so many difficult moments, which you got through with some grace. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope people listening got something out of it, except it, not advice. <laughs> <laughs> no advice, no advice. Right. No advice. We'll, we'll catch up with you soon, I hope. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.